Do you have a business idea based on your PhD research? A consultancy or a deep tech project? Well, you're not alone. A lot of PhD researchers out there have plans to become their own bosses rather than getting a job when they're done with their degree. In today's episode, you'll hear Jessica Steinberg's recount of her experience translating the knowledge she gained working on her thesis into a sustainable business. My dad has always said, create a personal board of directors. And that could be someone from an academic perspective. Um, it could be a friend, again, that might always be there for your mental health, because I think that's a really important thing, especially with a PhD. But it could also be people from the business world. Diversify their experiences, their insight. Get people that won't always agree with you because they need to challenge you. And so that when you do have questions like, what do I charge? Or what would be the next step to move from the starting point to really put myself on a pedestal next and, and elevate my services, for example? Get people around you that can really guide you. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to uh, another episode of Papa PhD. Today on Papa PhD, uh, we have Jessica Steinberg. Jessica explores how change happens at the intersection of normality and unfamiliarity, a cyclical process that is the 21st century embodiment of revolution's evolution. She's a PhD student at the University of Oxford, researching the process of policymaking through the lens of cannabis legalization and commercialization. Jessica is setting precedence for emerging markets to refuse systematic replication. Her policy work takes place as an official delegate for cannabis-related meetings held at the UN and at the WHO. Jessica's academic work led to commercial opportunities. She founded and is the managing director of international cannabis consultancy, The Global Sea, and co-founder of a women's empowerment organization, cultivating a space for women in the legal cannabis industry, Entourage Network. Jessica is head of community as Ohana CBD, a plant-based self-care skincare company. She speaks globally about her research and work, as well as the charity she founded when she was 13 years old, Giveable Giggles. So, Jessica, I'm super, super curious, super happy to, to have you on, on the show, and super curious to hear your story, to, to hear about all uh, these things that, that you're doing as you are uh, working towards your PhD. So, welcome to Papa PhD. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really excited to get into some of these topics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think the first thing we, we could do is, because um, I, I kind of uh, gave, you know, gave a short bio uh, that in a nutshell, it, it kind of tells your story. But um, thinking of the listeners out there that are, that are now uh, tuning in, um, I'd like you just to quickly talk a little bit about uh, about you about the science you do about how you got there and uh, uh, you know about where you are today in terms of your research and and graduate school definitely so i'm currently in going into my fourth year of my phd i'm in the write up process at the moment working towards confirmation And I've been doing academic work within the legal cannabis market for about five years, which started with my undergraduate degree at the University of St. Andrews. And first and foremost, I'm an anthropologist. So okay. I'm within the Center for Sociolegal Studies, which is in the Faculty of Law. But mm -hmm. I am not a lawyer. My background is in anthropology and international relations. And so awesome. my current project and the research really brings into play the global supply chain of the cannabis market alongside an anthropological methodology. So it's an ethnography, and that's how my fieldwork was conducted. Um, okay. But it's also questioning the legal processes and legal aspects within what's going on in this legal reform. So it's, mm -hmm. 
it brings in social aspects, anthropological, legal, international relations, things like that. And I ended up in the industry by way of my family back in 2015 when they actually moved to Colorado for pursuit in a job opportunity there. And okay. yeah, my, so my dad is in the industry and I was conducting field work then. But I think one of the things that has kind of come to play and how my research unfolded is a motivation that again links back to my family, which is through my mom, because in twenty six no sorry twenty seventeen it was the first year of my PhD and I had already done mm-hmm. loads of field work around then, but it was a very stigmatized topic and yeah. professors in, in different universities weren't really interested in taking it on legalization in some of the. G7 countries like Canada, that hadn't really been a thing yet. So very much stigmatized access to medical cannabis was an ongoing process. And my mom at that time was diagnosed with breast cancer, stage zero. And to um, (laughs) clarify for everyone that would be listening, she's totally okay now. But part of the motivation within my PhD at the time was a privilege on my hand to understand that I had access and I was interviewing some of the leading cannabinoid researchers, particularly for breast cancer. On the flip side, back in Colorado, because my dad was in the industry, he um, had access to some of the highest quality cannabis for medical patients. And as a medical patient, she had the privilege to be in a legal environment where she could actually get that type of medicine. So -hmm. the PhD at that time, it really clicked that what I'm doing is larger than a PhD itself. It's larger than a contribution to the academic literature, which was a huge, huge lack, but that I could mm-hmm. actually have an impact and a legacy that could go beyond and to realize my privilege to the, to the researchers conducting such studies or from the medical side and from the patient side, it was connecting all of those dots. And for me, it, it became something that was always at the forefront of my studies. And it was I always came back to the why am I doing this in the first place? And Mm -hmm. so cannabis sounds like a funny topic at times, but (laughs) it's something that because of its medical value and because of my family and the stake Mm -hmm. that we have had together through this process, um, I think it's a very important and quite a serious topic nonetheless. It is. It, it's very uh, current. Uh, you know, it's a very current topic. It's uh, it's very polarizing. It can be polarizing and taboo uh, in, in in different communities, in different cultures, different countries. But uh, um, it it is very interesting. And in the fact that you were li- living in your family through that particular situation must have definitely made it much more uh, fulfilling to be working in it. Maybe, but also have that you had more a sense of mission <laughs> while uh, while uh, doing your your research now um one thing that uh, that uh, i was reflecting upon and maybe i i don't think if i don't i don't know if this really how this connects but um it's rare uh, you know the, in the people i know that someone at 13 years old starts uh, starts uh, you know uh, uh, i don't know if it's a business or a foundation or whatever uh, can you talk about that? And does this loop back to, to what you're doing today? It's a, it's a great question because everyone, no, people that know me and know Giveable Giggles, when I got into cannabis, they thought that it was inherently linked because they thought that it meant Giveable Giggles, like you would light a bowl of cannabis and that it would give you the giggles. And I was like, <laughs> no, it's a cute name though. No. But (laughs) so Giveable Giggles is actually a charity, a 501c3. Mm -hmm. It's registered in the U.S. and has been for many years now. Um, It doesn't feed into my academic or some of the professional consultancy work that I do or the women's empowerment work that I do with Entourage or the community engagement with Ohana. But it does and it has probably influenced the way that I see the world and how Mm. I brought an entrepreneurial aspect into the process of the PhD itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Giveable Giggles, right now our mission is to help individuals do what they love to do in order to achieve what they aspire to do. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I have always personally followed. One of my mottos and things that I follow in life is you can create opportunities in order to create and make those become possibilities. 
And mm-hmm. so it's how do you connect the dots in a certain way, but use passion as that thread to get you there. And so Giggle Giggles doesn't relate to the, the research itself, mm-hmm. but the values and the lessons and some of the obstacles I experienced back then feed into my mm-hmm. mindset and my approach nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I, I made the same reflection that, uh, that uh, you mentioned friends uh, made. <laughs> and I thought, I, you know, and I thought at 13, it was probably not to do with cannabis. But uh, I think it, it is interesting it, you know, to see uh, how having had that experience, uh, and, and I, I really would like to talk about that today. I think, um, I, think I, I understand, you know, what you're working on in your research today. But what I'd really want to talk about is about this thing of being in a PhD and giving yourself the, the challenge, but also the space to develop, uh, a, you know, entrepreneurial projects around it. Uh, and, uh, and the reason it interests me is because um, a lot of the people I talk with, uh, and it also depends, on, of course, on what uh, domain you're doing your PhD in, but they they didn't uh, see during their PhD that they had this space, this uh, this opportunity to develop other, let's say. Uh, uh, you know, sizable projects besides their PhD, and you know, because seeing what seeing you and seeing what you do, I imagine there's other people who are in the same context as you are, and who maybe could could uh, use some inspiration on how to bring to life some project that they have, you know, in the in notes somewhere. I'd really love to talk about about that, how you navigated that that you know that uh, that journey of saying okay i'm i'm doing this academic work i have the, you know since i've been i've had uh, since 13 i've had this uh interest in in organizing larger things i want to do something else on the side of my phd and 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 create value uh, in a way so can you talk a little bit about uh, and and we we've heard we know what motivated it uh, i think i uh, for me i i can see the thread you know uh, from what you told but yeah can you just talk a little bit more about the process and about maybe difficulties you had to deal with uh, and and um and also the solutions and um, and uh, you know the 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 winning strategies that you may have found along the way definitely i think where i would start is acknowledging that when you're doing a phd and again this might be different between the social sciences and some other sciences but from my experience, doing a PhD, you become the expert. And that knowledge is incredibly valuable. And the difference between the academic world and the corporate world, for example, mm-hmm. might be the financials behind it. But there's also something about time and the practicality of a project. And for me, as an anthropologist, I always connected the dots, meaning I was in the field. I was becoming and observing the participants, mm-hmm. quote unquote, that I was working alongside. And so more or less, I became a cannabis professional while I was collecting my data. Mm-hmm. So it was connecting those dots to understand that if I'm already in the field, and I am a PhD student who's more or less becoming an expert on this specific topic, then the mm-hmm. next thing to do is put that into practice rather than only putting it into writing on paper. And for some people, that is their ultimate goal to get publications and things like that. For me, I'm not staying in the academic world. So how could I use my PhD as a way to uh, contribute to the next steps of my personal journey, but also the next steps of this professional development? And I think the challenges alongside that were, were very abundant. Uh, particularly because of my topic, it, it was already stigmatized. So facing that stigma with truth and people saying, okay, you're, you're studying cannabis, for example, and you consume cannabis yourself, you must be in, in, like incredibly lazy, stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, when I'm back home in Colorado in a legal state, I am as productive <laughs> as ever, mm-hmm. even if I am consuming cannabis. And so I think facing it with the truth is important. But, but back to your question about how to 
go about the process is I think you have to be willing to take the risk and make the time. And a PhD, mm-hmm. as it is for most people, it's a very flexible time management setup, but you have to be mm-hmm. quite disciplined with how you do that. And if you can find a place from passion, then it doesn't really seem like you're working. Um, mm-hmm. But when you can get the value, if it is a monetary value for a project that you're working on, and you can see how that is then leading to a client, whether that is an individual, an entrepreneur, a brand that's launching, or even if you're working with governments, because I have some colleagues that are advising governments on a consulting basis. However you can see your work put into practice is very meaningful because Mm. In my experience, there's been a huge, huge disconnect between the academic world and the reality of the world outside the university walls. And it, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that raises a question for me. Do you have support from your supervisor, let's say, for this? And, and one thing, you're in England, so PhD is three years, right? There's, you, you have three years to do it. So for sure, I, I understand when you say you need to be very disciplined because you can't extend it for two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> but, okay, but yeah, just going back, did you, did you have support uh, on, on your projects from, uh, from your, let's say, your supervisor or supervisors? Yeah, so normally I would say actually PhDs here are around like three to five years, depending on your program. So okay. there could be more time flexibility. Um, okay, okay. My supervisor was supportive of me being the best anthropologist I could be which meant mm-hmm. being in the field. And if that meant working on projects that could lead to data collection, then so be it. But she wasn't okay. actually the one that kind of helped me create that idea by any means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The reason it really did come about was because I had a number of people outside colleagues of mine asking just for me to give endless amount of information. I was like, this is nonsense. It's <laughs> academic brain drain. So that's why I really started pushing it from a consulting side. The other side was because I kept being one of the few females in a room at the conferences mm-hmm. I was attending. Mm-hmm. And again, as a new emerging nascent market to have that gender inequality was unacceptable from my of opinion. Course. In terms of the mentorship that I had elsewhere, that actually came about from people back home in the US and okay. one of my first mentors really who he's been incredibly supportive from a research perspective and has always known that I've had this fun entrepreneurial spirit was mm-hmm. my physics teacher uh, Mr. Okay. Enterman which is crazy because I don't do anything related to physics nowadays but <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Enterman helped me actually create a university level research project back in high school. This tied into Giveable Giggles because I was looking at the effects of laughter um, within some elementary school kids. And it was a psychology, uh, sorry, a psychology study um, Mm -hmm. with a ethics review board that it was the first time my high school actually had it because Mr. Unterman pushed them to set it up because he's like, if you're going to be doing a research project, you need to go under and go through the process of all of the steps. So it was Mm -hmm. at that point of my academic career, I guess I was a senior in high school. So I was 17 and 18 years old where I realized what research means, what impact it can have, but also that if it doesn't exist, that doesn't mean you can't do it. And so from a academic perspective, that meant, People aren't studying cannabis, but that doesn't mean I can't study cannabis. From an entrepreneurial point of view, it meant if no one's doing it, that probably means there's a gap in the market. (laughs) So so Mr. Unterman definitely installed that into my head and kind of the way that I work and I flow and being really rigid with how you do carry out research as well and then translating that into practice. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So he was definitely one of those. Hmm. No, and uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think it, mentors, when they come about in, in your life, uh, can be very important. And maybe they they just talk to you and say something that really you know that really uh, resonates with you and and changes the way you think about you think about something. But to have the support of someone you respect to 
you know, going into a process that you haven't ever gone before, like creating this 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 scientific project, must have been really really cool. Uh, now, uh, in terms of entrepreneurship, well, uh, I understand, and I'm you know I'm from what you're saying that you probably uh, you probably have uh, people to model from in your family, uh, but I, I'm I'm wondering, apart from that, whether you also went to look for either uh, a training or mentorship elsewhere how did that go? you know to you know how did you kind of transform and i don't know if it's the right word but yourself from a, a, a phd student into a phd student entrepreneur did that did it take some training some reading up or you know chatting with dad and and asking him for for uh his uh, his input yeah it was a process of ongoing learning and I would say that it is still learning <laughs> that I am undergoing. So a big help definitely was my family for my mom, my dad, and my brother. They've always okay. been big cheerleaders of mine. And when I have crazy ambitious ideas, they've been someone that's will always say, I believe in you and however we can support you even if that's mm -hmm. literally just sitting on my shoulder saying, go, mm -hmm. go, go, Jessica. Yeah, it's the first support support network, right? It's family. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of the practicality of how to get it done, that was a lot, a lot of trial and error, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was almost fake it until you become it. So... A great example of this is I didn't know what to charge for my first day rate or my first project rate. And mm -hmm. so I called someone in my family, I believe. I called a friend who I knew was in the business, like banking side of things. And I called a consultant okay. um, just to kind of get, it's like market research. Like that's what we do as PhD students. Just translate that into your your next job phase so mm -hmm. i called a few people and i said what's the going rate for a consultant i had everywhere from like 250 pounds upwards but then they said based on your current experience having at that time it was like four year, three or four years of research you could probably mm -hmm. charge um x amount and they gave me a mm -hmm. dollar amount and then okay. I called the client and I was like, okay, this is what I got, I'm going to charge. But it was a British client. And they go, mm -hmm. oh, no, that's not going to work for us. And they went down by 100 pounds. And I was like, okay. But in my mind, I was like, hmm. But they went down by 100 pounds. That's actually exactly what I was asking for in the dollar amount. So my <laughs> advice on that one was always aim high because it's a negotiation. At the end mm -hmm. of the day, if you think about it from a drafting perspective you're constantly working back and forth and from an mm -hmm. entrepreneurial client perspective it is this ongoing negotiation and to never sell yourself short because you know that you're going to put in the hard work and you can prove yourself mm -hmm. there and if it doesn't work for that client they're going to be flat out and tell you just make sure that you have a justification for why you're charging mm -hmm. what you're charging for example so mm -hmm. That's kind of how I would collect some of the information. I would ask around from different people. Um, I, I think a lot of it also was I had an experience of launching a nonprofit at such a young age. Yeah. So I kind of understood that I needed to register a company. And I, I just dived really deep into the internet mm -hmm. at times. And okay. I would say... My brother and my dad definitely are two people that I will just call up and have a very honest, blunt conversation and they can put me in my place when I need to be and bring me back down to earth and ground me a bit. And so my dad has always said, create a personal board of directors. And that could be someone from an academic perspective. Um, it could be a friend, again, that might always be there for your mental health, because I think that's a really important thing, especially with a PhD. But it could also mm -hmm. be people from the business world. So just create that personal board of directors, diversify their experiences, their insight, get people that won't always agree with you because they need to challenge you. And so that mm -hmm. when you do have questions like, what do I charge? Or what would be the next step to move from the starting point to really put myself on a pedestal next and, and elevate my services, for example? 
get people around you that mm -hmm. can really guide you and yeah informally right yeah. it's it's a you just think of people in your network who could okay this person would be really good to talk about this this person uh, you know like you said the friend that helps you keep balanced in your mental health but in, in an informal setting right it's yeah. you're not talking about an actual okay like okay. Yeah, that's, no that's binding agreements no contracts need to be signed <laughs> nothing like that you don't need a non-disclosure yeah. agreement it's <laughs> it's very informal but i think it's a knowing that you can trust those people around is really important Regardless of whether you have a personal board of directors or not, one thing Jessica is saying is always true. Having people around you who can champion you, counsel you, with whom you can brainstorm and who can challenge you are precious help in life and in particular in graduate school. I really hope that some of the guests that I've brought you in almost two years of Papa PhD are part of your career exploration board of directors. Remember, in the show notes of each episode, I leave you links to not only thank them, but also reach out to them if you have any questions or if you just want to follow up on what we talked about in the interview. If you want to reach out to Jessica, for example, you'll just have to go to papaphd.com forward slash 101 and you'll find all the links there. And if you feel that Papa PhD has helped you in any way in figuring out your post-PhD career and you want to support the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash PhD and become a patron for the equivalent of a coffee per month. This way, you'll be helping me bring new and better content each week to those who are still trying to find their path. And now, let's go back to my conversation with Jessica Steinberg. And it's it's super interesting, and I I really want to keep talking a little bit about entrepreneurship, and uh, specifically the question of uh, being a being a woman uh, entrepreneur and a, a woman in a let's say in a male dominated domain, which I, I feel that that's what, what that was your uh, the experience you had at the at the outset. But the, you mentioned mental health. You just you just talked about how it's important to have someone in this board of directors who. You know who can be your, uh, you know, the, the, your go-to person to keep you grounded, to to uh, to keep you uh, in balance. And I'm just thinking uh, of uh, of your day-to-day. -day. You are, you know, working towards your PhD. Um, you, yeah, you mentioned you're in the fourth year, right? Yeah, going into the fourth I, year. Yeah, <laughs> going into the fourth year. Um, I don't know. I don't know when you're going to, or, or you're considering writing and finishing, but. You still have a lot on your plate uh, with all these projects, and the question that I have for you is: What do you do um, to, uh, uh, well, apart from having good friends, right? Mm -hmm. But what what are your strategies or your tactics to stay balanced and to stay healthy? Uh, you know, uh, be it physically, but also mentally, having to deal with all these moving parts. Yeah, this is something that I'm constantly revisiting because I think balance and homeostasis changes very frequently, mm -hmm. especially from a, a female perspective um, and, and what's going on with our cycle. So I, I try to tap into my cycle quite often, to be honest, because it mm -hmm. will change brain frog and clarity, energy levels. <laughs> But on a regular basis, I have a routine, a morning and an evening routine that really sets me okay. up for success in my opinion. So in the morning, I, uh, the first thing I do is I'm kind of in like this liminal period before I wake up and I'm remembering mm -hmm. my dream. And then I have my journal right next to me. I write down my dream if I can remember it. And then oh, I'll lucky you. I <laughs> never remember my dreams. I've always been, my sister used to be like that. I never <laughs> was able, I was so jealous all my life. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So, so you start with like coming down from, uh, from the, the sleep, Uh, th that sleep period and and writing up your dream is that it taking notes on that yeah so that's that's the first Very step cool. really my phone will be off my phone is always on airplane mode overnight um, and then I write three things that I'm grateful for in the morning I have a process of like I make my bed I go brush my teeth with my left hand my non-dominant hand to kind of like retrain my brain a bit <laughs> I go straight into the light 
I think it's the best way to wake up. And then Mm -hmm. actually with the Ohana products, there's a day serum that we use and I use it for after I wash my face and stuff like that. But to actually bring myself into self-affirmations and some form of a visualization. So I'm visualizing myself at this time being called Dr. Jay Steinberg, for example, (laughs) or having a goal about publishing a book and seeing myself on stage speaking about the book and, and other things that I visualize that are goals of mine and actually getting there. And so that's in the morning. And then I do some form of mobility or movement to kind of get myself activated. And then I'm like in for the day. But in the- so I see you're really stepping it up uh, <laughs> level by level. I really like it. And I, I really like the, the kind of the gratitude journal. I am not doing that, but it's really something that I've recently read about. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure it kind of gives you this positivity uh, and this yeah this positive outset on the day that's to come. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. On the gratitude side, it's something that I start my day with, but it's also how I end my day. So it's three things in the evening that I'm very grateful for. And then I have three things that I need to or I hope to accomplish in the day after. They could be very mm-hmm. simple tasks, something from reviewing a draft for a chapter or okay. to remind myself to be kind to others. Something like the spectrum really varies on the type of task, but there's always three tasks. And so then in the morning, when I pick up my ver- my journal, like I said, it's the first thing I see. Before I'm mm-hmm. writing, the first thing I see are those three tasks that I want to get done. So I'm already thinking about where my day is going. Is going. That's yeah. very cool. That is very yeah. cool. <laughs> and then, yeah, so in the evening as well, I'm, I'm practicing Chinese because it's um, a language that I picked up in high school. So okay. that's when my phone, like, I'm not talking to anybody. People know that if they really need to get a hold of me, they can call me or something. <laughs> but that's, again, like activating the brain in a, in a different way. And then I'll do some form of meditative relaxation into sleep, okay. which more or less means like I'm falling asleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That, so, yeah, kind of a, the yoga nidra type thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Very, very cool. No, the, and I think... You know this. This uh, I'm sure this really allows you to recharge your batteries overnight in an optimal way, and and I think that for for people out there still in graduate school, some sort of routine, some sort of almost ritual like this will be helpful to you because first I think we we are beings that like routine. Our our organism likes to kind of know what to expect and. Uh, uh, I've you know I've met people who had trouble sleeping or uh, had like uh, invasive ideas and uh, these these types of um, uh, like ramping up in the morning and cooling down in the evening for sure uh, is going to be to be helpful and, and they're great ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Now uh, I, I think I, what I'd really like to talk about now and and I think we've covered some interesting aspects uh, of the practical your your you know what you do uh, in your day to set up your day to finish your day but um maybe I, I think one thing i'd like to talk about and i'd like you to share about is time management and and how you then once you 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 know kicked off your day how you then prepare and and are able to do all the things you have to do for your PhD and for the other things you're involved in. Because I think it's something that I, for example, myself would have liked to have, you know, learned more about or known more about when I was going through my PhD. Yeah, definitely. So from my, from the PhD perspective, one thing that um, I've started with in the center and it's been going on now since March and we're continuing it this term is a three-hour reading, writing, working, studying session. Okay. So it's three sessions of 45 minutes of uninterrupted work, and then we have 15 minutes of break. And this is a common practice for people in general. It's not just for students, but if you can Mm -hmm. dedicate and kind of block out that amount of time, knowing all of your notifications are turned off, your phone's in another room, Mm -hmm. your tabs of social media Mm -hmm. are forgotten about, just totally non-distracted 45 minutes. What we have found from the people that are joining these sessions is those three hours are the most productive hours of the day, if not the week, Mm -hmm. if it's the only session that they join. Mm -hmm. So that's 
one thing that we do that has worked really well. And it's interesting because you you might think, oh, well, it's a group of people, they'll be chatting. But I imagine that the fact that everyone is, is has this vibe and this this uh, uh, motivation makes it work in the end and makes everyone be fulfilled at the end of the work that they that they have uh, accomplished yeah. uh, how, how does that how, how's the group that how does the group dynamic help in in that precise uh, uh that precise model that you were just talking so about the group dynamic is helpful from an accountability perspective okay. on the one hand we're doing it over zoom so you have the faces and it's kind of like those lurking eyes that are looking around, <laughs> making sure that you're doing work because you can obviously see if someone like goes away from the computer for 10 minutes and the, mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. the judgment. But, <laughs> <laughs> but then the accountability on the other hand is actually really helpful because at the beginning of each session, we say what we're working on and what we hope to accomplish by the end of the third session. So by the end of the third session, we check in again and we say, How is it going? Why, where did you get stuck? How maybe have you come across or experienced this in your work and how can we help you and and things like that? And so Mm -hmm. again, it's kind of similar to what I do in the evening with that ritual. It's like, I I write down. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes the power of journaling. Yeah. And and just saying Mm -hmm. it out loud sometimes makes yourself more accountable because it becomes that Mm -hmm. much more real and you can see it and you can question it. And then you're holding yourself accountable to getting that done. And even if you don't get done what you needed to get done, I think you can reflect on that in a better way to then readjust your time management for the following sessions or your following work that's coming ahead. And so Mm -hmm. it's always about learning and growing within that process, not never being too hard on yourself as well, because it's sometimes what we're working on takes longer than expected. And that's totally fine because quality over quantity sometimes. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's definitely one thing that has been very helpful from a uh, academic side. The time management on the other side is Google calendar is my best friend and I will block Mm -hmm. out when I'm working on certain projects. I will color code it sometimes to make sure that I'm working on Ohana stuff or entourage things. And then again, I'm a very visual person. So I have different like to-do lists, I guess, within each of those categories from personal, I have Oxford, I have Ohana entourage and um, it's yeah, kind of prioritized in the time that I need to get it done. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also I think sometimes it's about filling your, my, my colleagues and I talk about this, that sometimes the busier are and the more that you fill your days, the more productive you can be. And mm-hmm. I find being busier helps me stay active on accomplishing what I need to get done, which is not to say I don't procrastinate, but I have this weird <laughs> term that my friends always make fun of me for using, but I have quote unquote productive procrastination where... <laughs> Yeah, please expand on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I might have a documentary in, in the background because I love documentaries and then mm-hmm. I'll be looking for different grants to help fund my studies or I think that's how I reached out to you. I was on a productive procrastination mm-hmm. process and I was like, podcasts would seem very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, just different things that are actually going to, again, build professional and personal growth and development it's still a form of procrastination because i'm not getting done what i need to get done but there's some form of productivity in there in the long run and so that's kind of how i balance it out yeah and sometimes you you can if you've spent a lot of time on one thing your your brain you you yourself may be a, a bit uh how can i say um yeah uh kind of burnt on on that specific topic and if you spend 15 minutes doing something else then you can come back and with a fresher the fresher look for sure uh, yeah we we uh so you reach out to me on linkedin and i'd really like your your um point of view uh, on linkedin for for graduate students uh, how, you know is it is it uh, a great a good platform to be on is it not what what's your take on that i'd, I'd really be curious to hear what uh, what what you have to say about that yeah I think for academics, Twitter is the go-to social media because it's mm-hmm. where a lot of academics push articles and, and opinions and stuff like that. LinkedIn definitely is a professional space. Um, I It's one of my favorite forms of social media because 
of the commercial side of the things that I'm working on more professionally. And Mm. it's really useful to keep in touch with colleagues in that way and kind of have an insight into what's going on in different industries and sectors. But I, I recommend it to everybody. Honestly, I think it's something that you should spend time kind of crafting your profile and having an online presence there is quite important. Mm -hmm. There's also quite a few groups that you can join. Like I'm part of different anthropological groups and like social sciences for cannabis researchers. And so there are some academic spaces as well, but I think it is a useful way to connect to people knowing that there's a form of professionalism rather than this informal relationship that might have Mm -hmm. question marks and dot, dot, dots around it. Yeah. I've had people comment with me that uh, in some countries, when you are a PhD, you get a salary, and and it it makes you yourself feel like I'm 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 a professional. I'm a you know I'm learning as I go, but you know I've I've studied all these years. Now I'm doing my my PhD, and my institution looks at me as, as a you know, one of the workers of the institution. So it, it's logical for me to create a LinkedIn profile, a professional profile. But then there's other cultures, other countries where it's pretty. It's very much the look of oh it, it, you're still a student, and I think. Uh, but I, I, like you're saying, I think no one, it's my opinion, but no one is you, loses by creating a LinkedIn profile and, and starting to build it and maintaining it, even if it's just like you were saying, to be part of groups that are very interesting, very dynamic. What I find uh, is, is that there, there's there's the discussions are always very, there's no nonsense and um, and often you you get in contact with really, really cool people. So anyway, that that that's why I was asking because... I've seen I've seen what LinkedIn can do, and uh, and I was wondering what what uh, what was happening with with PhD students, but of course because of your profile it does totally make sense that you're on there. Yeah, and I mean to your point for the people that say oh I'm a student and I shouldn't be on it, I would come back and say I think we're always a student in life, <laughs> even after my <laughs> well, PhD I will always be a student, and if you can use it as a way to learn, if, even if you are in the stereotypical definition of what a student means from university, mm-hmm. high school, maybe high schoolers aren't on it. Uh, but if you are in university and you are a student, I think it's a really interesting place to learn and to engage mm-hmm. and network. And again, to actually go to one of your earlier questions about mentors, one of my mentors, again, non-academic related, his name's Tommy Spalding. And okay. one of the things that he taught me from a very young age, because I met him when I was 17, um, was about the importance of relationships and maintaining them, treating them from a very equal, respectful, tolerant, accepting way. And the more Mm -hmm. that you make time for people, the more that you show up and you listen and take yourself out of it and you lead with your heart, that's really where this is coming from. And if you can use this is going to be an odd way to go back to LinkedIn, but if you can use LinkedIn as a way to build relationships and again, to your point about, or or my point earlier about personal board of directors and how Mm -hmm. you can really fill your space with people that you're learning from that are challenging you. If LinkedIn is a space to do that, by all means, take advantage of the resources that are in front of you. And I don't think, an age should limit that, a gender shouldn't limit that. It's just a platform and it's how you choose to go about using it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And uh, and, uh, and it, again, it's something that uh, to a certain level, if you know you can be free, you can also pay to have a bit more services, but uh, just what you get for free on LinkedIn uh, in terms of networking is huge. And and, uh, and again, the, the fact that it's very, like I was saying, no nonsense, very you know business-like in the way people interact, etc., it's uh, it's a very good to be one, I'd say. Yeah. Um, we're reaching the time limit I've given myself for the the episode, but I'd like to talk about your role in Entourage Network, and uh, uh, because I'm always interested in seeing how things are evolving in terms of uh, you know of of uh, women being able to you know go into entrepreneurship without barriers and uh, and go into new spaces. Uh, and and find uh, a voice there. Can you just talk a short minute on that? Yeah, Entourage came about because there was a lack of women in the space 
and it kind of fell on meaning it the cannabis industry fell on 20th century gender structures amongst other social structures and there's a a stat that goes around that two percent of all vc venture capital funds go to women and the rest goes to men so from a startup perspective that again is completely unacceptable. And when you have a new nascent market where there's a lack of women, meaning I can count the number of women in the room on one or two hands, that funding isn't going to go to the women (laughs) just flat out. And so there's just to have a space to engage with like-minded individuals where you have that allyship, community building, things like that are really important because it means that you are valued for being there, that you have the chance to show up, to learn, to explore, that you can collaborate with other individuals. And I think the cannabis industry has been doing a good job, particularly of moving towards more gender balance, but there are still quite a few issues with that. And it's not a sector specific issue. It's a global issue that we just need Mm -hmm. to face. And Entourage is doing our part by hosting different online webinars throughout COVID at least and prior to that was in in person to give women the tools that they need to excel because one of the things that we found is lack of confidence to actually get there. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I have been successful in my entrepreneurship journey is because I kind of own it in a sense that I walk in with confidence because I've been rejected a number of times I failed so many times and at that point I really don't care and I see the big, the biggest obstacle to anything is myself and my own mentality so confidence mm-hmm. is huge for women that have been part of our network and to give them the tools that they need the education that support the community collaboration it goes on and on and on that's mm-hmm. really where that momentum can start to build and and we have seen an increase in the number of people are attending our events and let alone other cannabis conferences around the world or in the UK and the EU specifically. So it's, it's a work in progress for sure, but I I don't think it's only for (laughs) my colleagues in the cannabis space. It's something that we have to work on on a daily um, basis. And that really comes down to, even in corporations of valuing valuing women where they belong. And mm-hmm. if you're an academic, having that no academic brain drain, but valuing the brains where they're <laughs> needed and stuff like that. So kind of having that right. confidence yep. to say so and do so. Very good. I, I, I had a, a guest in season one, and she mentioned a, a similar uh, organization here in Canada, but for, like for, for entrepreneur women globally, not in a specific domain and, yeah, I think it's important that these these types of organizations exist to kind of kind of help the scales get closer to a, to a certain equilibrium. Um, uh, Jessica, so actually, a good segue is uh, if people, if listeners out there, women who uh, who have uh, entrepreneurial ideas, want to find uh, uh, Entourage, where do they find them? Find Entourage, and also. Where do they find you if they want to reach out to you or, or find any of, of your projects online? Yeah, so Entourage, you can find us at Entourage Network, LDN. That is on Instagram. That's our primary mode of communication. Or on LinkedIn, okay. we're just Entourage Network. But we spell mm-hmm. it E-N-T, capital O-U-R. Uh, okay. Age is lowercase. Um, or our website is our ourentouragenetwork.com, our O-U-R first. And then personally, please connect with me on LinkedIn. (laughs) My name is Jessica Steinberg there. And otherwise, more than happy for people to reach out via my Oxford email, um, which is on my Oxford bio. Perfect. I, and I'll I'll put all of that in the in the, in the show notes, uh, and uh, and people will be able to reach you directly. Then, Jessica, uh, it was a great pleasure talking with you. And uh, again, it, it's this is something that um, it's the first time I've had the chance of talking specifically about the the, the whole the whole current uh, almost situation or, or developments in the, the the cannabis industry because things have really changed in the last few years. And uh, it was really interesting to talk about. Being a woman, you know, and although we didn't talk so much about it, I think a lot of what we talked kind of reflected onto that, being a young woman in this domain. 
Um, I also found it really, really interesting to to uh, have you share your your um, your routines, your daily routines of uh, winding up in the morning, winding down in the evening, but also the the, the strategies and the tactics you've, you that you've uh, applied during the day to kind of make things working and, and make the most of your days. So it was a great conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think the listeners are going to have, uh, you know, it's going to be a treat for the listeners to, to uh, hear what you shared here. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've asked very interesting, intriguing questions and I've had an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And that's week for this episode of Papa PhD. If you enjoyed my conversation with Jessica Steinberg and appreciate all the practical tips and advice she shared, go to the episode show notes and follow the link that's there to thank her. And also very important, share this episode with a friend. And now for the podcast discovery segment, I present you Curiosity Cake and the Lonely Pipette. I was always one of those curious kids. I had the chemistry set, a microscope, a telescope. I would take my toys apart to see how they worked. And now that I'm a grown-up, I still have that huge sense of curiosity. If you too are an adult who was a curious kid, then Curiosity Cake is made for you. I'm your host, Lee Delaney. Join me as I talk to the best minds from academia and elsewhere to bring you accessible and engaging conversations across a wide range of topics with no prior knowledge required. I'll be asking questions such as, can nuclear fusion become a viable source of sustainable clean energy? Is it possible to create careers that fit our interests and personalities? And how can we know how to eat well with so much conflicting nutrition information? You can enjoy a slice of Curiosity Cake by subscribing on your favorite podcast app or via the website curiositycake.co.uk. All you need is a cup of tea and a fork. Are you working in research, trying to make the best science for a better world? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or another made in science? Could you imagine one place where you can sit, rest, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have a good news for you all. We have just found what you are looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Von Oppo, and I am Jonathan Weisman, and welcome to Beyond Chance and Necessity. And that's it for this week's episode of Papa PhD. Thanks for listening, thanks for sharing, and see you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.